Acts chapter 10. We did a series in Acts a couple years ago, and um, I wanted to come back at this text. I've kind of been waiting to preach it uh, during this series, so hopefully it will be a, a blessing and encouragement to us this morning. One of the great um, disappointments in life is when something you expect to happen doesn't happen. I'm sure we've all got times, all got thoughts in our brains of of something that we really hoped would happen, something we expected would happen, something we counted on to happen in our lives. And, 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 and we got to the point where we thought it's going to take place, and it just didn't. And when our expectations aren't met, or when they change from what we hoped would happen or what we thought should take place, uh, it's, it's really easy to feel disillusioned. And sometimes if a person or people are involved in that, it's easy to feel frustrated with them and to feel some resentment that they who are supposed to fulfill what you thought should happen uh, didn't fulfill it. And that's not the only thing that can happen when our expectations aren't met. Sometimes it even becomes spiritual. Sometimes if we feel like life's supposed to go in a certain direction or the Lord was supposed to provide something or the Lord was supposed to help us in an area and he didn't help in exactly the way that we thought or lead us in exactly the way that we thought, we can develop resentment against him. And we don't necessarily want to say that out loud, but we start to feel some frustration and start to feel uh, maybe just, just a, a little, lack of a better word, a little irritation with the Lord. And of course, the enemy pushes that. The enemy exacerbates that and says, yes, you should be frustrated with God. Yes, you should be annoyed with God. Yes, God didn't meet what you thought was going to happen. God didn't do what you, what you felt was best. So, boy, he must not be a very faithful God. And this could even take place when the Spirit is clearly leading us, when the Spirit is clearly giving us direction. So if we don't guard against it, if we don't recognize it and, and push our, our hearts and our minds against that temptation... What we think should happen, and even more dangerously, what we want to happen, can begin to supersede our trust of Him. We can begin to think with a sense of entitlement, well, God, you should have done that, or you should have allowed that, and you didn't. And now, my trust in you is not going to be where it was before, because you did not meet my expectation. And that can put us into a spirit, in some places, of rebellion, where we just refuse to follow what the Lord wants, we refuse to yield to the Spirit because we didn't like what he did. Now, I want to look at this text this morning because there's an example uh, kind of of this principle, and maybe it doesn't go quite as far as I just described, but the, there's an example of two people who, who had expectations and had preconceived notions about how things should be. And God leads them together, and they come from very different worlds and very different nationalities, but God leads them together uh, in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bible and you haven't already turned, turn there. Acts 9 and 10 is a bridge section of the book. There are a couple bridge sections in, in the book of Acts, which we know is about the disciples. After Jesus goes back to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit. They receive the power of the Spirit. Acts 2, the church is born and, and starts to just explode, not only in Israel, but throughout the world. And um, we see that what we celebrate today, the church, was, was birth. The disciples get great boldness, they get great power, they get a great impetus to fulfill the great commission that Jesus had given them in Matthew 28. So in Acts, there are a couple times where there is a transition that takes place. 
really starts in chapter 6 with the martyrdom of Stephen. But when we get to chapter 9, that's where the first real significant um, event after Pentecost, other than Stephen's martyrdom, where, where the first really significant shift takes place. And it's when Paul is saved on the road to Damascus. Jesus confronts him uh, from heaven and calls him out uh, to repent of what he's been doing and martyring the church and calls him not only to be saved, but to be the main evangelist to the Gentiles. But in the early days of ministry, the rest of the disciples were not only skeptical, they were scared. Because Paul had been going around, he had been gathering up Christians, he had been imprisoning them, and in some cases had been consenting to the murder, as he is in Acts 6 with Stephen. So uh, when they hear Paul's been saved, he was Saul, became Paul, when, when they hear Paul's saved, they're, they're uh, understandably skeptical. They're, they're naturally hesitant to buy into the fact that this guy who's been martyring the church one day is now radically transformed and is to be the main evangelist to the Gentiles and that they should embrace him. So we see in Acts chapter 9 that, that they really are fairly intimidated. They're, they're scared. They don't really want to associate with him. Uh, and, and, and they're really suspicious that he might be a spy. Now that sets the stage for chapter 10 when Peter, who up until this point has been really the most prominent spokesman for the church and the one who's kind of been out front anytime there's a, there's a sermon to be given. Peter has been there, and he's really been the leader of the church. Now his ideas of what's going to happen and his, um, his commission is changed. And he's challenged in a fresh way by the Lord to think and live differently. And he's not the only one. To get him to a new way of thinking... For, for him to understand his new role, the Lord puts a man in his path who actually needs a, a revitalization of his thinking himself. Okay, you follow me so far? So, church is born. Peter is the leader. Paul gets saved. Peter's mindset has to shift. And for Peter's mindset to shift, God brings another man whose mindset also needs to shift to come be the catalyst to that. And what the Spirit teaches them really, I pray, will give us greater insight this morning into the work of the gospel and teach us some very practical truths about dealing with expectations. So start in chapter 10. Let's just read about 10 or 15 verses this morning. Start in verse 1, uh, and let's see kind of what's going on here. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on the angel and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch the men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, let's notice a couple important facts about Cornelius, because any time the Holy Spirit gives us detail, we need to pay attention to it and figure out why it's there, okay? Because the Holy Spirit, we know, doesn't include anything by accident. So look at what he says about Cornelius here. First of all, 
he says that he was an Italian centurion, which means he had a battalion of 100 soldiers that he was responsible for. So he was wise, he was capable, he was respected because the Roman army didn't hire slouches. They didn't put people that weren't capable to lead and weren't wise to lead uh, in, in terms of leading troops. So uh, Cornelius was more than competent. He was a very capable man. Second, we see that he was a devout believer who feared God. So he influenced those who were around him. He clearly was against the culture or religion because for Italians, for Romans, uh, they viewed the emperor as God. So you worship the emperor. So here is an Italian, a Roman citizen, a Roman uh, centurion, who now is going against the culture, going against what his, what his nation tells him is right, what his religion tells him is right uh, in terms of the culture, and, and he's become a bold believer in Jesus Christ. Now, or in the Lord at this point. Now, third, he's respected. He has a good relationship with the Jews because it says here in the verse that he was giving alms to the Jewish people, that he was helping them financially. That's no small detail because the Romans were the most powerful nation on earth. They considered themselves to be above everybody else. So for Cornelius to actually be helping the Jewish people financially really showed the Jewish people some value which again wins against the culture of, of his nation. But it's the line that's fourth that really steps out to me. He says, Cornelius prayed to God continually. Now don't rush past that detail because the Spirit highlights it as important. And we talk about counterculture. What a description of the value that he put on abiding in the presence of the Lord and about trusting that he could call on the Lord. See, there are four descriptions here for Cornelius, and two are uniquely spiritual. And I want you to see what they are. The two that are spiritual is, he feared the Lord and he prayed all the time. If you're going to describe Cornelius in two phrases, he feared the Lord and he prayed all the time. Now, as I was studying that and kind of uh, listening to the Lord, saying, Lord, what do you want uh, said here? I, the Lord clearly put on my thought. What are the Lord's description of you, Paul? How would God, how would I describe you? How would other people describe you? And put it back to us as a congregation. If, if there are two descriptions, if, if God's going to say, when I look at so-and-so, here are the two things that I would say, describe them spiritually. What would they be? Would it be Paul Rhodes fears the Lord more than anything? That's that's who he is. That's how he lives. It's what is in his heart and mind. There's nothing more important. He fears the Lord. And the second thing about him is he prays all the time. Now, when we start to evaluate this that way, it, it not only is sobering, but it challenges us. And, and really, I don't want the challenge necessarily to be like, oh, now I'm depressed because those two things don't describe me. This needs to stir us, as we prayed earlier, this needs to stir us and awaken our hearts and say, when God describes me, what does he say? When God describes what would be characteristic of my life, what would be the distinctive of my Christianity, what would be the distinctive of me as a follower of Jesus Christ, what would it be? I don't know the answer for you. I'm still trying to discern the answer for me. But I am saying, what a thing to be said about you. Oh, that when at the end of my life, that somebody would look back and say, Paul feared the Lord and he prayed all the time. What, 
What greater thing could we have said? Maybe that he was a powerful evangelist. Maybe that he loved the word of God. I don't know. I don't know if these are the best two things. I know these are two wonderful things. And about Cornelius, that's what was said. What's the desire in our heart this morning? I mean, really, let's talk personally here. What's the desire in our heart this morning? What do we want to become? We talk about scripture all the time, and we pray, and we sing, and we serve, and I'm so grateful for that. But, but really, let's get down, get down to, the, to the nitty-gritty of it this morning. What's your desire? What do you want to be said about you? Maybe it's not what's said about you now, but what do you want to be said about you? Cornelius feared the Lord. He's an Italian citizen. He's over a hundred men in his army. He's going against his culture. He's living in Caesarea. And all of a sudden, we see this man, and we don't know anything about him other than God says he fears the Lord and he prays all the time. Now, we don't know if he's praying here. We don't know if when the angel comes to meet him in verse 3, whether he's praying, but we do know it's the middle of the day. And as soon as the, the angel comes, and it says in verse 3 that he clearly saw this in a vision. This wasn't just some, you know, he had, he had bad hummus or something, and he's having a dream. It's like, oh, man, this is some kind of... No, this is a clear vision. This is unmistakable. He sees it. He knows what it is. He knows it's from the Lord. And as soon as he sees it, he says, Lord, what do you want to tell me? Because he understands it's from God. The more time we spend in the presence of the Lord, the easier it is to discern when he's talking. At the end of this series, which I think will end next week, I hope you get that message. I hope I get that message. That the more time we spend in the presence of the Lord, the easier it will be to discern when the Lord's speaking. Cornelius knows. He knows it's the Lord. And the angel comes and he says to him, your prayer, look at it, your prayer and alms have ascended as a memorial for God. It's almost like there's a, there's a figurative statue, a figurative a memorial that's been built to heaven because of uh, Cornelius' prayer and because of his sacrifice. And then the angel says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go find Peter. Go to Joppa, go find him, he's there, he's an important man, you've got to find him. And notice that Cornelius immediately obeys. There's no question, there's no hesitation, there's no reticence, he doesn't analyze it, he doesn't think through it, he doesn't say, well, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of things we've got to solve first. He says, no, we're going to immediately do this. He gets some trusted friends, he gets some faithful servants, people who are like-minded with him, who will give him some accountability, and he says, go, find this guy. Bring him back. We, we've got to find Peter because God has told us what to do. Now, before we get to what Peter does, because that's really where we're going to focus our attention this morning, think about how difficult this was for Cornelius. He's used to giving orders. He's used to being the one in charge. And yet now he's being told to go find some random Jew. He doesn't know who Peter was. He doesn't know what Peter's about. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets there. He's not given any details on why he asked to find him. He doesn't know if Peter will be receptive. He doesn't know what the implications of this are for his family or his job or his future. He has no clue what this is going to be. And yet, God says it, Cornelius listens, and he does it. I want to give you four principles this morning very quickly 
And, and I believe these are from the Lord and that God will help kind of stir our hearts this morning when we see these. But, but let me give you the first principle. The first principle is we can't let the fear of the unknown drive our decision-making. We can't let the fear of the unknown drive our decision-making, especially when we're getting direction from the Lord. When God gives direction, when God says, go in this way, we can't sit back and be fearful just because we don't know what's going to happen long term. If, if we are, then we're just not walking by faith because faith is the belief in what is not yet seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. So when God gives direction, we can't be fearful that, that we don't know what's going to happen exactly and we can't see all the details, so therefore we're not going to do it. See, a lot of temptation is sourced in fear. Fear of being deprived, fear of not being fulfilled, fear of, of the Lord's leading, that it's not going to be compatible with what we want or that it will really stretch our faith. A lot of temptation is sourced in fear and apprehension. And Cornelius had to feel some apprehension. Why wouldn't he? Everything goes against the grain here in terms of what he feels comfortable with. And it says that he's kind of alarmed in verse 4. He's kind of disturbed. He doesn't, he doesn't quite know what to do with it. He's in an uncertain position. And yet he still obeys. Now there are a couple qualifiers to this as we go forward. One is that we need to make sure that it's the Lord's direction before we act. Because a lot of times we can start down a path and we haven't really sought the Lord yet. We haven't asked him, Lord, is this right? But we kind of nuance it and say, well, I think this is right and the Lord doesn't seem to be stopping it, so we'll just go ahead and do it. So we need to make sure, and we've studied that over the past eight or nine weeks, how we understand when it's the Lord speaking. And then second, the way to be confident, ultimately, that the Lord is speaking is to spend time in his presence continually. And that's what Cornelius was doing. When he sees the angel, had never seen an angel before, never had a vision before, we don't get the sense that this was a regular thing for him. So when he sees the angel, how does he know it's an angel? Well, we could say, well, the angel, and, you know, angels aren't like we picture them with, you know, the wings and the white robe. I mean, the, you know, our conception of angels is different from what they look like. But, but we don't know if it was because he looked like an angel. How do we know what an angel looks like? Or because Cornelius really had a spiritual discernment because he was constantly before the Lord and constantly in his presence. See, when we're in his presence, we, we can know, here's, here's the distinction, we can know that we're spending enough time in God's presence or we're not spending enough time in his presence based on how present fear is in our lives. You can determine how much you're spending time in God's presence by how much fear is controlling your heart and mind. I've had great times in the last 40 years of being saved of, of real fear and worry where I'm just at the edge, where I'm just anxious, where I'm just kind of, oh, I don't know what to do next. But, but what I've discovered in four decades that as soon as I bring that to the Lord in humility and faith, that pervasive feeling of fear and anxiety diminishes. I mean, it's, it's become, as I enter now, my fifth decade of being a believer. Can you believe that I'm that old? I know. I see the gray hair. I have learned, finally, after four decades, that it is palatable, that it is, that it is visceral, 
that as soon as I go into the presence of the Lord when I'm feeling anxious, as soon as I come to him and say, Lord, I am in your hands, I am before you, I have no control over this, take this, you lead, I will obey, I won't question, I will just yield. I have found after four decades that as soon as I do that, that God says, boom, the anxiety is gone. The fear is gone. The nervousness is gone. You don't have to worry now because you've put me in charge and I know what I'm doing. You don't. Now, I'm not saying that as some kind of pipe dream or some kind of, well, I got to sell you on this. I'm telling you from personal experience, that's what I'm experiencing. And I'm not bragging about that. I'm saying it take me 40 years to figure it out. That when we come to the place of fear or anxiety or nervousness or, Lord, what are you doing? And we're churning internally and we're saying, God, I don't know what to do. And we're all stressed out. That if we would just get in the presence of the Lord, this is so foundational, that if we would just get in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, it is in your hands. I just want to abide in your presence and yield to you. That God instantly sends what he talks about in chapter 4, Philippians. Peace that passes all understanding. And then it fills our hearts and minds. Not just our hearts, but our minds. This is not some complicated formula. This is not something that we have to come up with. This is just basic theology. Cornelius is nervous. He's frightened. He doesn't know what to do. He's seeing a vision. He's being told to go find this guy. But he's settled. Why? Because he used to be in the presence of the Lord. He's used to abiding with Christ. Now that leads us to Peter. Now Peter's got his own set of stress. How many know that's true? Peter was always a little uptight. Peter was always, you know, probably had a little twitch. Like, you know, Peter's just kind of, you know, he's just kind of chomping at the bit all the time. And he has his own share of regrets. Peter had made a lot of mistakes. He had... The ability to say the wrong thing at the right time. He had uh, impulsive behavior. He had betrayed Jesus. He, he got angry when Jesus being betrayed and started swiping ears off of soldiers. I mean, Peter, Peter was very strong-willed. He's like a lot of us. I'll admit that this morning. I'm strong-willed. He, he, was, he was always believing that he was right. And then he was dogmatic about what he believed in. I mean, he, he even got to the point of being so certain that he was right that he challenges Jesus. And Jesus has to say, you know what? You're acting like the devil right now. Devil, you get behind him. See, Peter, Peter was all over the top. Peter was out there. Peter was really, I mean, I love the guy. I relate to him. But he was just, all right, come on. We're going to do it my way. I'm right. I know what I'm doing. And, and we're going to do this. So very strong opinions, very strong convictions, which was good, but, but usually he created problems because when people disagreed with him or questioned him, he got up in their face. So with that in mind, look at what happens in chapter 10, starting in verse 9, because this is going to challenge Peter on multiple levels. On the next day, as they were on their way, in other words, Cornelius' men are going to find Peter, as they're approaching the city, they're... They're, they're coming up to the town. Peter goes up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. While they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opening up, 
and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, saying, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now when Peter, verse 17, was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Now the symbolism of this dream is unmistakable. There's no way to miss what it's about, because the Lord speaks to Peter directly and says, eat any of these animals, even the unclean ones. Now, unclean animals, uh, uh, it's an understatement to say that they were off limits to the Jews. They could not eat certain things. They could not be around certain things. They could not associate with certain things. The law gives chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of all the things that they could not do uh, because it would make them unclean. And when they became unclean, if they had association with that, then they had to go through a very ritualistic purification process to make themselves clean. So they were very wary, very hesitant, especially if they were a devout Jew, of anything that was unclean. So Peter is on the rooftop, and he has this dream, and he sees this huge sheet coming down, and it's filled with all these animals. Some who are clean and some are unclean. And the Lord says to him, now go eat an unclean animal. And Peter says, mm, I don't know about that. I don't think I'm going to do that because my head tells me not to be defiled. And yet I know that it's you, Lord, speaking. And there must be a reason why you're telling me this. And the Lord speaks to him directly. There's no question that it's the Lord. Peter isn't unsure about that. But when the voice says, kill and eat, look at what Peter says. He says, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. I know it's you, Lord, but I have never, ever eaten anything unholy or unclean, and I'm not about to start now. Even in my dream, I'm not going to do this. So God says it a second time. And Peter, we assume, has the same reaction. And then God says it a third time, and Peter gives the same answer. Now, when the sheet disappears and Peter wakes up, he's not sure what it means which is unusual for Peter because he's usually pretty quick on the take. But Peter doesn't quite get it. He doesn't understand that these animals represent all people and that the command to eat is an instruction to take the gospel to all people, including the Gentiles, that it's a command to have fellowship with any believer, no matter if they are Jew or Gentile, because now those who are saved and purified from sin by Christ are now one body. But Peter fights against this because his expectation is controlled by his upbringing. The Gentiles were always considered unclean, and that was so ingrained into every Jew from the moment of birth that even when Jesus says, look, I'm dying for all, there will be one body that is joined together by salvation, and I am personally ensuring that through my death and resurrection, that, that even after he sees Jesus, watches Jesus die, sees Jesus risen again, and sees Jesus go back up into heaven and say, go into all the world, even after all of that, Peter still is not swayed. 
And you see it here in verses 14 and 17. He's not going to embrace this change. Jews were hesitant on this. They, they resisted it. And we know that's a struggle because five chapters later, at the Jerusalem Council, Paul has to confront Peter and say, look, you're facing the peer pressure. You're listening to your Jewish friends that are saying the Gentiles can be saved, but they have to obey all the tenets of the law just like we do. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow the rituals. They have to do all the things that the law says. And Peter is kind of capitulating and saying, well, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, maybe it would be okay for the Gentiles to do that just as a matter of good faith. And Paul, who is smaller than Peter and just kind of nothing, gets up in Peter's face and says, you need to cut it out. Cut it out, Peter. There's nothing about the gospel that says the Gentiles have to follow the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. The law is done. Now we live by the new covenant. Now we live by the law of grace. We're not going to make the Gentiles follow the law. And you Jews need to get your act together and realize that too. I mean, Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, is, is a major kind of dispute. But Peter was yielding here. Peter was, was kind of giving in. Why did he do that? Why did, why did the Jews not want the Gentiles to be part of the body? Well, it was because of national pride. They had always had a pride that they were God's chosen people and, and that since the time of Abraham, God had set them apart and given them a nation and blessed them and he had brought them out of Egypt and given them the law and defeated their enemies and, 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 and even when they were scattered, he sent prophets and then he was going to restore them and they had all these promises. They, they, were, they were so proud of their nationality that when Christ comes and says, Jews, you haven't paid attention to God, so now the Gentiles have the opportunity. They said, well, we don't want the Gentiles to be part of that. We, we, don't, we don't want to accept that. And, and if we do, well, it's not going to be equal acceptance because we're still God's chosen people. All right, Gentiles, you can come eat at the table, but, but you're lesser than. This was still an issue throughout the middle of the first century because Paul has to write to the church in Ephesus and he has to write to the church in Galatia and say, look, what you're trying to impose on the Gentiles is wrong. So this was a major issue. And this pride, listen now, this pride had caused them in many ways to miss the Messiah. They didn't want to be called out on their sin. They didn't want to, to, to have to die to self daily. And to include the Gentiles would really be an issue uh, of threatening their, their identity as God's people. So they didn't want it. Now, here's the second spiritual principle, and then I'm going to go right to the third one. The second spiritual principle that springs out of Peter's response is that when our expectations aren't met, when our expectations aren't met, evaluate whether your disappointment is an issue of pride in not being satisfied instead of a justified frustration. Let me say it again because it's long. When our expectations are not met, evaluate whether the disappointment is an issue of pride at not being satisfied instead of a justified frustration. Sometimes the two can coexist, but it's very rare. See, our emotions are so strong and our pride is so powerful that even in these situations, the extent of our disappointment is an indication of the measure of our pride. And the danger is 
that when we don't get our way or the Lord moves in a way that doesn't meet our expectations, that we start to develop kind of a, a distrusting, disobedient spirit in order to defend our opinion. You getting what I'm saying? In other words, when, when God doesn't move how we want and we don't get what we want, that, that instead of yielding and saying, Lord, maybe I need to reevaluate my pride, we, we then become more dogmatic in our pride and we start to say, well, maybe I can't really trust the Lord because I've got to stay with what I believe is right. Now, there are a multitude of tangents how that plays out in our lives. And I'm not even going to try to begin to talk about them. But we have to be humble. We have to recognize and fight every time this happens because it will drive a wedge between us and the Lord and it will drive a wedge between us and other believers. And even when it seems morally right or spiritually defensible, we need to check our heart because the enemy loves to twist. He loves to twist truth. He loves to create frustration that is rooted in pride. And that's the third principle that goes along with that. Understand that what we expect isn't always right. Understand that what we expect isn't always right. Just because we expect something to happen doesn't mean that it should happen the way we want. Now, the reason Peter didn't immediately understand the message of the vision was because he had preconceived notions about the Gentiles. Even as a believer who had walked with Christ, even as a believer who had seen Christ risen, even as a believer who had been given the Great Commission and whom the church was built on and who had given the first sermon at Pentecost, he still has some preconceived notions that he had learned as a Jew. And that bias against Gentiles was there from the standpoint of strict Judaism. He couldn't associate with the Gentiles. But Christ had changed everything. And now Peter's expectations had to change too. He's still thinking with a Jewish mindset. He's still feeling the pressure of his friends who are saved and unsaved, who are saying we can't allow the Gentiles to be part of this. But Peter now starts to get it. And after Acts 15 that I told you about, the Jerusalem Council, Peter's mindset changes to the point that he writes in 1 Peter 2, talking about the church, talking about Jews and Gentiles, he says, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. See, Peter had to have his mindset. He had to have his expectations changed. And here's what I want, and here's what I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning in this part. The Lord wants to challenge the subtlety of our pride. And he wants to challenge the prevalence, listen now, of how often we think we're right, which is far more than we think. If you've ever read the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes all about this in the Screwtape Letters, about how the devil tempts us to live in our pride. There's another book that I love. I don't know if you've ever read it. I encourage you to get it. It's about $6.99. I should order some copies. It's called The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. Little simple book. And I'm telling you, this book will rock you. But I want to read you something that Hessian writes here about our pride. And I want you to listen to what he says. To be, uh, if, however, we're to come into this right relationship with the Lord, the first thing we must learn is that our wills must be broken to his will. To be broken is the beginning of revival. Hear that. To be broken is the beginning of revival. It's painful, it's humiliating, but it's the only way. 
It is being not I by Christ, and a sea is a bent I. The Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands up for its right, and seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will, admits its wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights, and discards its own glory, that the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it's dying to self and self-attitudes. And as we look honestly at our Christian lives, we can see how much of the self there is in each of us. It is so often self who tries to live the Christian life, the mere fact that we use the word try indicates that it's self who has the responsibility. It's self, too, who is often doing Christian work. It's always self who gets irritable and envious and resentful and critical and worried. It is self who is hard and unyielding in its attitudes to others. It is self who is shy and self-conscious and reserved. No wonder we need breaking. As long as self is in control, God can do little with us. For the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, with which God longs to fill us, is the complete antithesis of the hard, unbroken spirit within us and presupposes that self has been crucified. Man, that's good. That's good, and that's exactly what the issue is. And the reason that's so important is that it impacts our understanding of the last spiritual principle. And this spiritual principle is important. Instead of resisting what's happening because it doesn't make sense, reevaluate whether the Lord might be doing a fresh work. Instead of resisting, instead of saying, well, Lord, I know best, and I need self, my, myself needs some play in this, I need to have some control in this, I need some understanding, I need to get my way, uh, and, and Lord, what you're doing doesn't really make sense, and I don't know why, and it's hard for me to trust. Instead of saying all that, we need to yield ourselves and say, Lord, maybe you're doing a fresh work that I can't see yet, and instead of fighting it, I need to just trust him. See, the outgrowth of the breaking of our pride that Hessian talks about is not only personal revival, but it's also a greater discernment into the plan of the Lord, which is far above our plans. We've studied that in prayer meeting, that God's plan is, is too wonderful for us to understand. It, it's way above what we can imagine, and that applies to us personally, and it applies to us as a congregation. We need greater awareness of the plans of the Lord and his leading that we don't know about yet. And the only way to be in the center of that plan is to remain broken and to continuously seek him. There is no substitute for those two things. Now, how do we know that's true? Well, the passage proves it. Because if you look back at Acts 10, verses 9 to 16... Where does the Lord have Peter? What's the situation that he has when God says, I have a fresh work to do, and Peter, you're going to have to yield to it? What's he doing in verse 9? Tell me. What's, what's Peter doing when God gives him this plan? Tell me. He's praying. He's not having lunch. He's not reading the prophets. He's praying. He's before the Lord. How many times does the Lord have to give him the message? Three times. Why three? Well, three is the number of perfection and completion, but three times it also took to convince Peter that what he proudly held on to as a Jew needed to be altered and he needed to accept it. 
Peter denied Christ three times. Now God says three times, Peter, the plan, you, you, you need to change your thinking. Peter had been there. Listen, just two more minutes. Peter had been there when Jesus had talked about the new covenant in his blood. We celebrated it last Sunday. And he said, this cup is the new covenant. They couldn't miss that word. The old covenant was Abraham and Moses and sacrifices and lambs having the throat cut and the blood be put on the altar of the day of atonement. He says, we're not under that anymore. This now is the new covenant. I'm the lamb. It's my blood. And this is permanent. So, Peter's sitting there, right next to Jesus, when Jesus takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Peter is there when Jesus resurrects and says, I've defeated sin and death. And Peter is there when Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. In Jerusalem and Judea, that's comfort zone, but go to Samaria, which is your enemies, and go into the uttermost parts of the earth, which is the Gentiles. Peter is there at Pentecost when many nations are represented and he stands up and says, you need to know about Jesus. This is not new information. It's just information he has to accept. And This is one of the great dangers within our faith that when we don't understand, because 1 Corinthians 13 says we still see through a glass darkly, that when we don't understand that we resist the work of the Lord rather than yielding to it. When things don't make sense in your life or when they seem to be working in a different direction that doesn't satisfy us, that is not the time to become disillusioned with the Lord. It's the time to seek him more fervently. And when the answer isn't clear, we're not supposed to give up and say, well, God is not working. We're supposed to get before his throne and say, Lord, this may be different from what I expect, but I am all in. I'm all in. I, I am there with you. I will do whatever you say. Look at one more verse. Isn't it interesting that when Peter finally sits down with Cornelius and all the others who are assembled in verse 27 says it was a big crowd, what would you want to hear from Peter? If Peter walked in the room this morning, what would you want to hear from him? Oh, man, dude. Tell us what it was like to walk with Jesus. Seriously, what was it like to watch miracles? That must have been so cool. And when he taught, man, was that just unreal? And when you walked on the water, come on, tell us about that. That's, that's like so cool. And, and Peter, what was it like when you saw Jesus the first time after the resurrection? And, and, and what was it like to be there at Pentecost? Tell us, tell us about it. Isn't it interesting that they don't ask him about any of his experiences? Look at what it says in verse 33, and we're done. When they got together and they gathered, they said, now then, we're all here present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. In other words, your experiences are great, but we want to know what the Lord is saying. What is the Lord saying in your life right now? What is the Lord saying to this church right now? You know why we say you need to be here at prayer meeting? We say we need to be here at prayer meeting because we need to discern, Lord, what are you doing right now? 
What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in my problems? What are you doing to provide? What are you doing to lead me? What are you doing to lead us? What do you want from us? Lord, we need to know what you're doing now. Because the Lord has plans. And he's moving in our midst. We were having a conversation at dinner the other night, one of the few times I've seen my kids this week. And we were saying, yeah, we're just about to complete year four. And I was sitting there at the table thinking, what a difference between year one and entering into year five. Some of you have been here since day one. Some of you are new. We've been through a lot. And the Lord's been good, hasn't he? My daughter said, I kind of miss the days when the whole church fit into the trailer. <laughs> I thought, it was interesting days. God was faithful. People were faithful. He blessed us. He's moved us, moved us, moved us, moved us, moved us. People have gone. People have come. Ministries changed. We can't just look back and say, well, we wish it was like that. Or, or, or we hope someday it'll be like this. We need to understand, Lord... What are you doing right now? What do you want for us right now? In your life, if you're facing difficulty or frustration or uncertainty, Lord, what do you want right now? And God may have to change. I'm talking too long. Let me say this last thing. God may have to change our expectations. Because our expectations are our expectations. And they're usually selfishly motivated. But God says, I know the plans I have for you. We started Thursday night. I know the plans I have for you. And my plans are way above your plans. My plans are far greater than your plans. So I'm hearing what you're saying. But you need to hear what I'm saying. You need to hear what I want. And when I tell you what I want, you need to yield to it. And if you do, you'll be smack in the center of my will. And I'll bless it beyond measure.